I'm Rachel Friedman. And I'm Tara Morgan. Here at Study State Podcast, we are really interested in backstories, the experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. By sharing stories about the humanity of our sport, we're disrupting the narrative about rowing culture and celebrating a real-life experience from launch to cox seat at every level. If this is your first time here, welcome. If you're coming back for another episode, thanks for being here. Last time on Steady State Podcast, we enjoyed a conversation with 86-year-old Bill McLean and 83-year-olds Lee Warren and Alan McLennan. If you were in Boston for the 2022 Head of the Charles, you might have caught a glimpse of these three in a community rowing octogenarian eight with a combined 720 years of rowing experience. Bill, Lee, Alan, and their coach, Catherine Sorella, shared insights on lifelong fitness, being relentlessly active, and those moments you can only find after shoving off the dock. If you missed it, listen anytime at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast or anywhere you get podcasts. This episode is made possible in part by Concept2 and our newest sponsor, Breakwater Realty in Portland, Maine. Become a sponsor for as little as $65 at steadystatenetwork.com slash sponsors. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Concept2, making world-class rowing products since 1976. Find out more at concept2.com. Seattle has the Pococks, Philadelphia has the Kellys, Boston has the Stones. We're really excited to kick off Season 4 with mother-daughter Olympians Lisa and Jevy Stone. Lisa was a member of the first U.S. women's Olympic rowing team in 1976. She married Greg Stone, an Olympian and original founder of Crash Bees, and went on to a 42-year coaching career at the helm of collegiate and high school programs. Jevy was raised in a competitive environment and was a natural when she took up rowing in high school coached by her mom. She won youth nationals her first year on the team and went on to row at Princeton. Jevy was a member of the 2012, 2016, and 2021 U.S. Olympic teams, all while in medical school and then as an emergency medicine resident. I'm Jevy Stone. And I'm Lisa Stone. And you're listening to Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. Hey, Rachel. So today we are talking to a lifelong dream of mine to meet and talk to Jebby Stone and her mom, yeah. Lisa. I'm excited. Why are you excited? I think I'm excited because you're excited. I mean, yeah. yes, I'm excited to talk to Jebby Stone and Lisa Stone, who just they've got decades of history and Olympic history. But you're the one who got me excited about them. And you have been like, oh, my God, I need to talk to Jebby for so long that I'm excited for you to be able to finally talk to them. If you could put a finger on why you're excited to talk to them, what would it be? You know, I think as an adult athlete, we need our role models and we need our heroes. And I have a lot of those heroes. I've talked a lot about Eleanor McElveen, Sarah Nevin, but I get emotional thinking about how much this sport means to me. And when someone like Lisa and Jebby have championed the sport and just loved it. At least that's my impression of it, right? That it feel like they truly, it's been in their blood, their yeah. families since the 70s, you know? But at the heart of it is what we all can relate to as rowers. We love the sport. And these people have just exemplified 
in my opinion. And maybe I'm making them into something bigger than they are, but she's just a real, she's a physical specimen, Jebby is. She is just dedicated to the sport and she just always seems like such a kind spirit. And I think we all aspire to be both of those things and not just throwing it away or taking it for granted. And I just can't wait to hear what where their heart is about rowing. And and I feel ready to be inspired and ready to be informed. And you know, I think we just really need to be able to meet our heroes. And I am just so excited. I've seen her race and I've seen her row and I've met her mom once before and I screamed when I saw her at the head of the Charles this year. At least I thought I did. Go for it because you know what? You know who's here waiting to come into our our Zoom chat? Oh, Uh, okay. Okay. Oh, deep breath. Okay. We're professionals. We're professionals. She's just a lady. She's just a lady who rows. She's just a rower. (laughs) Hello, man. Hi, guys. Hey. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. I'm so excited that you're in the same room. (laughs) I thought it'd be more fun that way. I'm only 15 minutes away. I heard so, with my dad this morning in our group and then came over and took a nap and here we are. We're so glad that you're here. We're excited to talk with you about rowing, your rowing lives, your rowing experiences. First things first, how is your rowing week going? We're both laughing. Um, my only attempted row of this week was this morning, and it's currently 40 degrees, pouring rain, and blowing 18 miles an hour in Boston. So it, it was not a row, but my group got together and we did a 12 days of Christmas Oregon circuit. And I have not rowed. I just mostly drive launches, and that's been a little while. I have to get back into uh, the boat, definitely, but I haven't yet. There's an erg in the basement calling your I name. Know. I've been on ergs. <laughs> Lisa, do you, when you ride in those launches in those cold uh, northeastern winters or, you know, whenever people are still on the water, are you a fan of the full Mustang suit? The full Oh, yeah, regardless? definitely. I, yeah. I retired last June, but yeah, towards the, you know, end of October, um, March, April, it, it's a, yeah, definitely love the full on suit. Me too. I always feel so powerful. You know, you got your megaphone, you got your keys, you got your hippie <laughs> kit, and you're just like, here we go. So I mean, she also has the full-on hat with like the mad bomber kind of hat, yeah. the rabbit skin. Rabbit oh, yeah. Very nice. Okay. So one way that we have our listeners get to know our guests is that we put you in the hot seat for what we call rapid fire. It's a lightning round of questions. Are you ready? Yeah, as ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> all right. So let's have Jevy answer first and then Lisa. All right. First question, port or starboard? Both. Oh, both. Okay. Bow seat or stroke seat? There's only one in a single, but both again. <laughs> both. Fair. Stroke. Head race or sprint race? Head race. Head race. Unisuit or tank and trowel? Unisuit, tank and trial. Now this one, we know that you're basically a sculler, but favorite Cox command to receive? Oh, goodness. I'm thinking about this one. Way enough. Um, I think sit ready, too. Best place to row? Oh, to train or to race? Either one or both. Let us know. To race Agbalet, France. It's stunning in that it's like set in the mountains um with pine trees but it's also 
when I raced there, it was just like perfectly flat every day and like beautifully fair and the water's clean. You can go swimming afterwards, the semi-ice bath. And there's really good local ice cream too. We're starting to say, what about to train? To train. Oh, I think the training center in Cork might be my favorite place to train. They have everything there. It's like a six mile river with a 2K in the middle. The boathouse is at the 1750. They have an ergroom, a weight room. It's like everything you could need in a rowing setup. I would say Boston, the pandemic year was pretty great. It was like pretty mm. close to perfect. Yeah. Boston in normal year has too many launches to be perfect. But Boston, the pandemic year when everyone was off the water was great. When a single was only. Yeah, just wide open. Boats. Yeah. yeah. For, for me, I think the last time I was actually doing mileage, I liked the Charles because I could go out around nine or 10 in the morning. So I didn't have to deal with that. And I guess I haven't raced as many places as Jebby, but I would say Bled, which was Yugoslavia when I raced there. <laughs> right. Right. Slovenia now. It's magical. I don't, you know, it's just a beautiful lake with a little island. And it was my last year of rowing internationally. And it was, I was in a quad that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Sometimes it's a, it's the combination of the place, the people, the yeah. amenities and all of the things. We often hear from our elite athletes like Eric Murray and folks, they always say Lucerne is one of their mm -hmm. top places, but they always talk about amazing. They talk about the cows with the bells. Yeah. The only problem with Lucerne is that there's no like warm up or cool down zone. So Eggblatt had enough lake that they had a warm up zone past the start and a cool down to the sides. So there's space for that. Mm -hmm. uh, Lucerne is like six lanes by 2000 meters. That is it. <laughs> Pretty much. There's like a tiny little 750 loop that's two lanes wide. I mean, it's fantastic. And it's right in the city and it's beautiful. I remember the first time I went, was it, were you on the train with me? You take the train in from the airport and you go have. past the running course. And then I looked it over and there's water with these red buoys. And I was like, that's so weird. Who planted those red buoys in that pattern? My dad was like, that's the rowing course, <laughs> Well, yeah, we put a, put a pin in our virtual map. And that's another place we'd love to see. We hear it's gorgeous. All right, we got one last question. Rapid fire. You want to you go, Tara? Sure. Coffee before or after a row? After my stomach can't take it, take it before. I never drank coffee when I was training. <laughs> so I never, that was never a question. I prefer naps to coffee when I was training. Um, but now that I have a job, I need the coffee after. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, we're always curious and we'd like to ask that question because at least at the master's level that Tara and I know a whole lot about is you get off the water and um, if not every day after practice, then Fridays after practice, you go out with your teammates and have some coffee. So it seems like a kind of a leveler. With my recent experiences, there was one year we had an espresso machine at the boathouse that was coffee during the workout. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's it's interesting people's responses about it. There's some people who give us very specific like training responses, like physiologically, that's good for you to have caffeine or, you know, there's all lots sorts of answers. Then there's belly questions and tummy questions, you know, tummy answers about it. So we want to find out how all this got started for both of you. Lisa, what was happening for you when you learned to row? I graduated from high school in 1972. And one of my classmates' father had rowed in the 48 Olympics in the Cal Men's Eight. And she, he mentored her and she started a program at my high school. We rode on Lake Merritt in um, Oakland. Mm -hmm. I went to Piedmont High School. Anyway, so we had this great spring and we, everybody had rode about the same time. We beat a combined with Skyline High. We beat University of Washington. 
because no one had been on the water for more than a year or two. And we were all, you know, an 18-year-old is no different than a 19-year-old. So it was a blast and went to NWRAs. And then I, my freshman year, I was at Berkeley and it was Steve Gladstone's first go around there. And he said I was too small to row sweeps, that I should move to Long Beach and Skull. And there was already a program established, a you know, elite level program. Joan Lynn was the formative, you know, person in that. There were there was a fairly sizable group. And so I moved to Long Beach in January of 74 and made the US team that spring. It's a pretty quick uh start, quick. start to elite. So yeah. Do you yeah. do you do you remember those first few strokes on the water and and what appealed to you about it? I mean, the high school program was run, the coaches were St. Mary's College, which I think is in Orinda or Moraga, mm -hmm. was a men's school at the time. And those, the coaches were St. Mary's students and they were just the nicest guys. And it was just a lot of fun. We all wore, wore jean cutoffs and cotton tees and the wood, the boat, you know, the boats were big wooden boats. The oars were big wooden oars. It was just sort of fun. And it was the first time I participated in that kind of team sport. And we just had a blast. Yeah, was sports part of your life up till that point? Because we no, because it was the seventies. I mean, I think my high school offered tennis and swimming. There wasn't. I mean, on the, I think on the East Coast there were more field sports available, field hockey, that sort of thing. But that was it, and I wasn't good at either. So you know, I didn't do team sports until rowing came along. But Title Nine, you know, nineteen seventy-two, Women's Olympics, nineteen seventy. You know, it was they voted nineteen seventy-two. Now, were, was that something that you were aware of as a high school oh, yeah. student? Oh, yeah. Very aware of. Yeah. I mean, when I showed up at Berkeley, they knew they had to offer women's rowing. And so they said to me, and at the time, I didn't really think of it. Oh, Lisa, go ahead and start a program. Steve Gladstone and the athletic director, Dave Maggard. And I think in retrospect, that's a pretty harsh thing to say to an 18-year-old in a campus the size of UC Berkeley. Yeah. I, you know, so it was expedient to go to Southern California. I was not an organizer. So you wanted to be on a team, not run a team. Right. Definitely. You know, think about boats, water, coaches, recruiting, you know, just not my thing. Were there any, um, with Long Beach's program, were they modeling themselves after something back east where they had coaches? Like, where were they getting their coaches from or their curriculum well, the, from? The word, do you remember? There were two coaches. Well, there actually one, Tom McKibben, and he ran the program. And at the time, John Van Blum, who married Joan later on, um, was rowing. But then he eventually became a coach as well. And they, you know, they had gone east for trials, but they were really Southern California people. And they both had been on the national team. I think they were world champs in the men's double in 69. So they had a vision about what it was to be an elite athlete. And you feel like they were on board with Title IX. They felt like women could handle well, their training. and Yeah, I think, yeah, they were they were ready to go. I mean, I don't, there wasn't any, there was no women's locker room. And then there was quite an amusing episode where one of the women just said the hell with it and went into the men's shower room to shower. And there was one guy in there, but he had such bad eyesight. He had no idea she was in there with him. <laughs> so, um <laughs> It, you know, eventually they built a, a locker room for the women, but that was like 77 or 78. I, I think I've heard that story multiple times. Eleanor McElvain was my coach at, at uh, Cotterbury in Seattle, and she was part of that early 80s University of Washington cruise. 
And they talked about that sort of disparity of equipment, disparity of resources, disparity. There wasn't a disparity in equipment. I think Tom Hmm. really tried to get what was available. And we I don't think we were ever handicapped by equipment. And and that's and certainly going into 76, the focus was the women's program. They were more, you know, sort of a little more success than the men. So it wasn't like we were JV, I don't think. Was it both sweep and skull? No, just sculling. And so you already mentioned this really quick trajectory, right? From learning to row to making the Olympic squad. And, and but early on, would you say that you were it was a natural fit for you rowing or do you remember stumbling at the beginning over over learning a, a part of the stroke? No, I don't think so. It was a sort I guess it was sort of natural. I mean, it was always fun. So, Jeffy, what about you? What was going on in your life when you finally picked up an oar? And... <laughs> so I obviously grew up around rowing. Um, my mom started coaching at my school when I was in middle school. So we can't start rowing till ninth grade. So she had already been the coach as soon as it was an option to me. Uh, but I had played soccer and lacrosse at that point and said, no, I play soccer and lacrosse and I'm not going to row because my parents row and that's what they do. That's their thing. Uh, rowing wasn't as cool a sport as soccer and lacrosse were. And I am pretty terrible at soccer and very mediocre at lacrosse. <laughs> so my freshman year, I guess I realized that pretty quickly. And then I rode my sophomore fall as my novice season and had some fun doing it. I think was frustrated by it other ways. I think uh, it came, I had been in a boat before with my parents and was lucky that it came somewhat naturally to me and I don't think it came as naturally to some of the people in the boat who are really trying athletics or playing a sport for the first time there we were with a lot of freshmen and they wanted to try rowing because rowing seemed different than the ball sports and you're not handicapped from having not having started at a young age we had a lot of fun but it was definitely challenging and then I tried out for lacrosse that spring and said if I make varsity I'll keep playing lacrosse through high school and if I don't I'll switch to rowing next year and I didn't make lacrosse, so I kept rowing the next year. Um, yeah. And that was a very good life decision slash failure. <laughs> so did you start in a sweep program and move to sculling, or was it also just sculling? I was just sweep. Uh, so I started in eight. My novice year, the novices were in the more stable boats. And in the spring, and in the, I guess most of the people on the team raced eights in the fall of Windsor. At that point, we really didn't race a four in the fall until my senior fall. We put together four for Heather Charles because we had a competitive crew. But... In the spring, we raced four just because by the size of your school, you're assigned a fours or an eights league in New England. It was really that first spring and seat racing that I really fell in love with the sport. I said, this is really cool how people are going all out during practice, which I think is something very unique to rowing that it really does mimic a complete game day situation, but also that there's no offense or defense. It's just everyone working hard at the same time. Right. There's no bench. There's no bench warmers. There's no timeouts. There's, you know, just how it compares to those typical um, field sports uh, that we're also yeah. used to. Yeah. Yeah. What seat were you usually in the eight? So, so for that for in the eight, when I was a novice, I think I stroked it most of the time. I started as a port. Yes. I think I started as a port. And then that spring, looked at the lineups and said, oh, it's going to be easier to make that first boat as a starboard. Because you went from the first boat being eight people to the first boat being four people. <laughs> so I switched sides to starboard. And then, I, so I was recruited as a starboard. But by my senior spring, I had switched back to And then in college, rode starboard my first year and a half before I switched back to port. 
for the last two and a half years. So I did a decent amount of flip-flopping, but I didn't stroke. We had a girl, Lily Higgins, who was a great stroke. So I either sat in two or three. So I'm going to ask the same question I asked of your mom, which was, and it, I think I might have a sense of how you're going to answer this, but um, so you grew up around rowing. You had learned probably some basics from your folks, and then you get into an actual high school program. Your mom is coaching. Did it come very naturally to you, or was there anything that you struggled over, whether that's technique or just mentally getting in the game? I think, I mean, I'm lucky, and then it came relatively naturally. We, and my mom's my coach. She could, she walked up to watch it, so she probably remembers better. But I went from like being an obvious to making the first boat that spring and we won nationals, youth nats. So that would be natural. <laughs> I mean, you need three other people and a coxswain to do that. Right. So it's not right. just one person. But um, so I was with other good women or girls rather at that point. So Lisa, when you're raising your kids, you've got Phoebe and Robbie and Jevy, and both you and your husband are established national team uh, athletes and rowing. And it's obviously part of the family. Is this just an everyday topic? Like, is it always, was it always talked <laughs> um, about in, like, so, in terms of getting your kids active? Like, it was just like, no, no, you pick a sport and you will play a sport and we hope that you do rowing someday. So Robbie and Phoebe rode in high school mm-hmm. and Robbie rode a year and a half, two years in college, but then he got a rib injury that was just chronic. And Phoebe um, injured her back her senior year in high school. She was slated to row lightweights at Radcliffe, but... um I never stop. really enjoyed it. But we it's a, it's a no-go when the five of us are together. We cannot talk about rowing. And I sort of, I, I'm really, I'm the worst of Jevy and Greg and I. I. Like, I got sent to my room in high school for talking about rowing at the dinner table. If it's just the three of us, we can talk rowing forever. But as soon as Phoebe or Robbie there, rowing comes up and it's, nah, it's a no-go. We're no, not allowed to. No, 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 no deal. Well, why, so, why is it? I'm curious when it's such a big part of they're, they're not interested in the level of what we're talking about and there are other things definitely that we need to discuss as you know as a family that's more interesting for all five of us now it's now it's eight everybody has a significant other so it's sort of and none of them rode so it's like no and i'm going to ask the flip of that question which is why is it that we could talk about rowing all day every day what and my theory is that it is an ever-changing ever aspirational moment like you're always going for that moment there's always something to learn something to try what do you think it is about it because rachel and i this is how we started this podcast we literally could talk about it well we we don't i don't that there isn't a lot i mean i know that jevy and um, greg talk about the technical aspects a lot but i'm finishing out my last two months on the u.s rowing board and so a lot of what we talk about is high performance and politics interesting Yeah. yeah which is the never ending you know, yeah. hotbed, hotbed of yeah. conversation. Not, yeah. When she was coaching, we would talk about the training plans and the high schoolers and how right. to get around this thing or that thing or what to do in response to yeah. injury. Amusing incidents at the boathouse. I, I just, you know, I coach high school girls for 24 years and I just adore them all. They're, they were, it was so much fun. I will say going back to your first question though, we were, even though rowing is obviously a sport later in life, we were very much encouraged to be active as kids. My sister was a very good hockey player, um, but the rest of us, Robbie and I were, you know, fine at eye hands boards, but we were always encouraged to be outside. So we were always running around the neighborhood with the neighborhood kids, like playing Foursquare, playing Sharks and Minnows, um, going on hikes with the family. It was definitely, if we were being annoying in the house, my dad would say, go outside and take a lap. And literally you'd go outside and run around the house. 
So I would imagine that that kind of an active household had some pretty good habits, some pretty good expectations, some pretty good uh, just joy of being active and being healthy. And did you do you find that rowing has always been uh, a guiding force in just having a fit and active lifestyle? I think it comes from earlier on than the introduction of rowing. I think sure. it's more, you know, I. And I looked at my mom because I was wondering if whether like her rowing influenced how she raised us in that way. I will say, in addition to being active and that stuff, we were definitely raised to be competitive, whether it was super intentional or not. But I mean, I remember being on the airplane and my dad having breath holding competitions with us in order to entertain us. But like, everything was a competition mm. with me and my siblings. Yeah. So it's understandable that you would like seat racing that. Yes. Just- Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Breakwater Realty Group serving Maine and New Hampshire. Breakwater Realty Group is defined by integrity, service, and expertise. Breakwater challenges you to create a vision for your life and love where you live. Visit the team at breakwaterrealtygroup.com. Breakwater Realty Group, the evolution of your real estate experience starts here. Steady State Podcast is made possible with listener support. Become a patron today for early access to episodes, discount on SSN swag, and invitations to patron-only events. Find out more about support levels and benefits at steadystatenetwork.com slash Patreon. Follow Steady State Network on Facebook and Instagram at Steady State Network. Sign up for our e-newsletter and become a patron at steadystatenetwork.com. In two, we're back with Lisa and Jevy Stone. That's one, two. So Lisa, I met you at the 2019 U.S. Rowing uh, Convention when they did the Women of the Row uh, on the Schuylkill, on the Boathouse Row. And I was there on behalf of another podcast and I asked you to describe the perfect stroke. And I was asking a bunch of people and I actually found the video of your response to that. Oh, but I remember being really moved by the fact that you used the word suspension, which made me so happy <laughs> because, you know, I found that when I, I've asked hundreds of people literally to describe the perfect stroke and I find people fall into one of two camps, the it's possible camp and the it's not possible camp. There's also with the possible people, there's the technical and then there's the poetic. And I really loved that you came at it with a very, um, technical response that it was possible and you talked about suspension but i'm wondering would you what would you say now of describing the perfect stroke and i'd like to ask jevy too i guess going back to my last year you know last year of coaching last year um is place and push i mean obviously there's suspension i think you know i kept on simplifying it and i you know i i had this moment someone one of my athletes you know had spent a summer rowing and came up and go oh lisa i now have a fast catch and i'm like oh no (laughs) because that means you know the emphasis was placed you know was put not on the suspension but on getting the blade in fast which i think is i think it's sort of now misguided in the vernacular and and efficiency debbie what would you say how would you describe uh, the perfect stroke have you ever had one i don't know i wonder if i'm in the impossible camp never had a perfect stroke i one perfect stroke Maybe, but I think in rowing, you're always seeking for more. And one of the things I tell junior rowers is the reason I kept rowing is because I never got to reach fast because once you gain speed, there's always more to go. You can always get faster. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so even if you hit like that time you've been yearning for, there's still faster times to go. Like there's always so much empty space in front of you that you can keep chasing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what keeps people at it for so long is that there's always there's always faster out there. And I think that one of the things that in chasing that faster, you want to have, you want to row better and have more. And so you're not looking for necessarily one perfect stroke, but you're looking for two pers- perfect strokes and three perfect strokes. And it's hard to get a number of perfect strokes in sync. But I think that there are days that I think some of it's situational. I think in order to get the perfect stroke, you need like that water to cooperate um, because you want to achieve that. I think it's like the suspension on the drive and the balance and the recovery where the boat is gliding underneath you and you really feel like you're doing no work to make the boat go fast. So did you feel that head of the Charles this year and the Uh, women's master single? Definitely not. Definitely not in this. In oh my this gosh, no, it gets it hurt. a world record on the course that day and you didn't feel that. Oh, no, it get it hurts so much more. I was telling people afterwards that the race doesn't get any shorter. I trained for about half the time that I used to and the race is the same length. It hurts so much more now. I mean, you used to go out and row like 20K in a row and no big deal. And now I get in 10K on a day. And when you go out ahead of the Charles, like you have to row at least 10K that day in terms of the mm-hmm. warm up and the race and the cool down. Like the wrong one of the longer rows I did all fall. So the fitness definitely is not so it's not what it was. So it's still really fun. Um, it's challenging in a different way. I think if I've hit the perfect stroke, it's been at rate 22 or 24. Hmm. I think at a rate where you are able to go fast, it's faster than steady state and work hard. So like full pressure at a 22 or 24, but also get the length of the strokes like really get that complete rank length and letting the boat run and like getting that great ratio yeah lots of glide lots of send yeah yeah just talking about this not not on the water but on on the erg right so right now we're spending a lot of time on the erg over the winter i've settled in this is week three of concept two holiday challenge I'll and my uh, hundred thousand meters <laughs> do, are you doing it i did it yeah oh congrats. i'm doing it i guess i'm still slowly working my way past 100,000. I hit it yesterday and I was telling Tara about doing um, 1,500 meter intervals at a low rating and how you can feel that efficiency. And I really enjoy working at that sort of a stroke rating because you can, you have just enough time to feel what you're doing and you feel certain muscles turn on. On the other hand, for our last uh, episode, talked to um, some octogenarians who rode the head of the Charles. And um, Bill Beckleen was the coxswain of a boat. And he talked about basically once you hit like a 30-32, you know, like it kind of doesn't matter what your technique is. You know, you don't have enough time to think about it. Yeah, it's definitely true in a way. And we used to say when I raced the grade eight at Head of the Charles with all the different single scholars and we all row slightly differently in our singles, some styles more distinctly different than the others. But and when we did steady state, it was terrible because everyone does have time to think about how they row and you have all the mismatched pieces. And then as soon as you get to above 30, it all blends together because it's just drive and recovery. Yep. Yep. I I watched you win in 2019. I was the crazy fool screaming on the to the shoreline of the Charles. I was like, oh, my God, there she is. And you were winning. And what kind of ratings were you doing at your like peak level down the Charles? In the single? Mm-hmm. Probably around like a 31, 32. It's honestly, it's not that different than 
the 2K race rate. It's only like two beats, but a lot less ratio because you're going slower. You're just kind of like kicking it along. Lisa, we know that you competed in the quad at 76 as part of the first women's Olympic team. And we're curious, we're kind of going back to that Title IX question, but more about the the birth of women's rowing on the international competitive level. What did team training and and equity and and the team atmosphere, what was that like at that time when you went to Montreal? I think back then you're sort of dealing with a lot of arrogant males, but I didn't get a sense of, I think that the the real disparity, which sort of was a, a sort of a healthy distraction, was the difference between Western countries and the Soviet bloc. Because we were dealing, we were racing against doped athletes. I mean, pretty much everybody was doped. And I think you felt that more than you felt what was going on with between the men and the women. I mean, I, there's sort of expectations that there isn't parity, I think, back then. So it was sort of like you, you know, you went along. I don't remember like any particular incident, which I mean, maybe I forgot them purposely because, you know, why hold on to bad memories? But I don't ever remember, uh, you know, some guy saying to me, you know, you don't deserve to be here or some official being, uh, you know, harsh. I, I yeah. just don't remember it. So I don't I think it was more the difference between the doped and non-doped. And that, I think also my question relates to like, was there a celebration because you had finally arrived in the in the international competition arena? No, I don't think so. There wasn't, you know, you just sort of didn't. I mean, I think more when I raced in the double in 77 and 78, you got to know your competitors. And so we had some relationship, but in the quad and then, you know, which was 74, 75, 76 and 79, I really didn't. Seemed to, I mean, you had a team to rely upon. You weren't really interacting with your competitors much. Mm-hmm. I mean, a little bit, mostly trading shirts at the end, but um, not not so much. I don't. I know that in '77 was the first time that U.S. rowing had an event. It, the worlds were in Amsterdam, and they actually had a dinner with the men and women together. That's where I first met my husband. But. It was, you know, so there, I think they felt because of what Harry had done with the eight in 76, that there was some parody, you know, that there maybe the women deserved to be acknowledged. I mean, that we, we saw that, but, you know, we had great managers. There's a guy named Peter Lippett, who was just amazing and took care of us really well. So I don't think, um, I did, it wasn't in your face. And I, and also, I grew up, I mean, my growing career was in Southern California, and California is like a test tube for whatever happens. It's, at least it seemed that way. And everybody thought it was really cool that we were fit and working out. I mean, there, it was, wasn't so much, you can't use the machine, you're a girl. It's like, oh, that's cool. You know, and then looking at the weight, as opposed to the East Coast, where like my contemporaries at Yale had real battles. And I know that at Radcliffe, they were sort of the women were thought to be second-class citizens, you know, to Harvard guys. I, I didn't feel that in Southern California. There was no, aside from no locker room, which was logistics and money, um, I didn't really feel it. When you think about all California, just like the California system had women as students like so far before the big East Coast institutions. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. And I think Rachel and I coming from the generation um, that has has come after Title IX and we've benefited from Title IX. We look back on your generation as these 
really important figures and heroes that made it possible for us to be able to play soccer and our kids and our grandkids can, you know, play whatever sport they want. And I wonder what it feels like, like when we ask you those types of questions, is that strange to say, wow, what a special time that was. And you're like, yeah, it really wasn't a special time. <laughs> well, I, I, it's just like, we were just rowing. It's well, funny. She doesn't like mention the fact that like when they raced in Montreal, they raced a thousand meters and the oh, men yeah. raced 2000. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of like they, they, that woman couldn't, right? There yeah. was no women's marathon. I mean, that was, I mean, we all thought that was odd. I mean, I think at the time I was really relieved that I didn't have to race 2,000 meters because I knew the difference, you know, but it is a different kind of race. I think in the end, 2,000 meters would have been fine if I trained for it. I think women were diminished. It's, it's, um, it, it wasn't any different than life, I guess is the thing. And, and it, all the sort of progress is incremental. And certainly I think the opportunities, I, a part of it now with rowing is access. I mean, do you have access? And, and now it's more like, water i mean there there's just limited bodies of water that you can row on and then it was you know what boathouses can you get into and i mean gradually you know obviously all the pretty much all the doors have opened so you know it it happened i'm I'm actually really glad you talked about growing up in california it is a different atmosphere than growing up out east and i feel like a lot of the discussions we've had folks who are from east coast have a different perspective on what was going on in the 70s with women in sport. I, I just don't, didn't feel the barriers. I think yeah. part of it is you're just so self-absorbed in doing what you need to do to get fitter that, you know, there weren't any big roadblocks to doing that. And, and our program was particularly oriented toward the women, especially 76, 7 and 8. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit, Tara, okay? All right. So, Lisa, you mentioned in passing before your husband and meeting your husband, whose name is Greg. I think maybe it was a little bit of an oversight to not ask if he'd be a part of the conversation today. But could you tell us just a little bit about his background? Well, he wrote in high school at St. Paul School, which is actually where our Phoebe wrote as well. That's a the rowing is a big deal there. Um, rode in eights and they decided the eight as a boat. I thought that was fascinating as opposed to seat racing. So you just be put in a boat and if that boat won, then you were the first boat. And then he um, went to Harvard and had a very successful career there. He was part of the Rudin Smooth group. He actually has never lost a college race because for his freshman crew was very fast and then he was on JV for two years. And then he was in the varsity in 75. And then he was coaching uh, the lightweights. I think he was the uh, freshman coach of lightweights at Harvard and then was at law, was in law school and was training at the same time. And I sort of met him, I think, after his second year of law school. And my um, I had one more semester I needed it to take at Long Beach. And Liz was still my rowing partner. And so I moved east to row with her. But she lived in Durham, New Hampshire, which was there's nothing happening there. So I was in Boston and there was a very vibrant elite level rowing community was very sociable. Um, and that sort of was a, you know, sort of continued the relationship with Greg after 77. And that's how yeah. you guys all settled in Boston? Well, he's, yeah. I mean, I, every now and then I think it would be nice to live in California. Not necessarily now, but Greg is a confirmed Yankee and there's no reason he would leave New England. Now, am I right in that he was a part of the initial group of folks who got crash bees together? Oh, yeah. Actually, it wasn't an erg thing. They would get together and race college crews. Never Harvard, but I think Coast Guard and Yale. Northeastern. Northeastern. 
And it was it was a wonderful group. Larry Gluckman was part of it. And Greg and Larry had a funny conversation because Greg attributed the start of Crash Bees to Larry and Larry attributed it to Greg. And then Tiff Wood sort of ran for it once the Dreisagackers had developed the ERG and they the first couple of Crash Bees were upstairs at New Old Boathouse. They were pretty crazy. I mean, it was a tack thing. It was very rudimentary, but especially if you just like pulling hard, it was perfect for, you know. Uh, they were on the water. They would race. The rule was they couldn't race the same lineup twice. It was these throw together crews. Yeah, they couldn't race the same lineup twice. And they always jump the start. They always jump, but then they, the college crews had to give them dinner. (laughs) They got a free dinner out of it. And it stands for Charles River All-Star Husbands. Yeah, Yeah. it wasn't stellars. But then Tip took it over and it ended up being an erg thing. And I think college coaches were less approachable about racing group. And then they aged out, too. They just got too old and too slow to be good competition. Crash Bees, although, you know, it's become this huge event. Is that anything that either of you have participated in? I've never raced in it, but I was on the board of management for it for quite a while. I, I think I stepped off about, I don't know, five or six years ago. And I raced it in high school. I think I did it my junior and senior year. Yeah, I think so. I swam both. I swam through high school. And I remember I would probably practice like five times before getting on the ERG for 2K. It was never pretty or fun, but I did it. (laughs) Yeah, those big indoor competitions are, you know, the whole thing with the garbage cans and the kids just, you know, it's crazy. My favorite event is the Hour of Power. I like the slog for sure. Yeah, I always, the 30-minute tests were my, what I was best at and what I liked. For the national team, we did a lot of, uh, Tom started doing it, I guess, in the Rio Quadrennial, maybe London, um, but 30 minutes at a 22. And you just do plenty of time to think, but um, so the playlist really matters. What's your what's your top choice for playlist content? Uh, I listen to a decent amount of, it's pop for the most part, I would say. Um, yeah, some 80s in there. The dog is dog really knows. wants to be a part of this. Oh, <laughs> who's that? His name's Hank. He was a boathouse dog. He's 80 pounds. He doesn't. Oh, there he is. Oh, Hank. <laughs> oh, that's a pretty dog. He doesn't swim, but he was a launch dog. <laughs> There's actually a, an Instagram account called Regatta Dogs. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think they've been on it. There was a great picture. There was the Road 2K picture of the day one year with Hank when he was a puppy sitting in the coxswain seat. Oh, I love that. I love it when people you, put babies. You put an animal on them put in slings. Yeah. We actually had a conversation with Peter Kerman from Burr and Boatswings. We met him at the head of the trials and we interviewed him. And our burning question was, what do you think about people who sit in slings when you see people doing that? And he's like, hey, it's good business for us because they keep ordering replacement parts because people sit in the sling. <laughs> yeah. They're not- I love sitting in slings. I've done yeah. it my whole life. And that's like what I remember from a kid at head of the Charles is racing slings. Harvard has slings on wheels. Mm-hmm. They're the wooden oh, ones, wooden yeah. slings on wheels um, that you can race through the boathouse. You can push other people sitting on the slings, race them through the boathouse. But yeah, mm-hmm. we definitely, I mean, we were kids. We were light enough, hopefully not to make too huge of a difference in the lifetime of the sling. So I have one other thing I kind of wanted to ask you about. I've been, uh, my entire rowing life and career has been here on the East Coast. And I've spent a lot of time in Philadelphia along Kelly Drive. And uh, folks out here know a bit about the Kelly family and, you know, mm-hmm. it's multiple generations of rowers there. And so while I was getting ready to talk with you today, I was kind of thinking about uh, a certain parallel between the Kelly family in Philadelphia and the Stone family in Boston. 
you know, it doesn't take a whole lot when you Google Jevy Stone, Lisa Stone or Greg Stone to find lots and lots of interviews with you and lots and lots of people talking about you being an institution in Boston. I was wondering if anybody's kind of talked to you about that and ever drawn that parallel between you and the Kelly family. No, I've never heard it. No, no. I would. I Yeah, no, I, I know JB. I, um, he was an undergrad when I was coach. I coached at Harvard for six years. Lightweights for three and then ran the program for three before Liz Valeri took over. And he was an undergrad. He's a delightful guy. And then I've seen him more recently. But yeah, I I would not. I don't think of us in that way. Well, that, my follow up to that is, you know, when you do Google the Stone family, I mean, there's a lot of articles uh, and a lot of coverage. Well, of you guys. <laughs> well, and there's a lot of the family Stone, you know, kind of play right. on the play. on right. the skin. I think there there is a legacy. I mean, you're kind of destined to have a legacy in the sport and i would ask what do you if you if there was one what would you hope it is i mean you as a long 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 time coach and jevy as a long time athlete what would you hope a, a stone family legacy would be I, I guess just the joy of rowing i mean that's what i would hope the legacy would be i mean especially coaching kids which is i mean i i think we had fun not every day all day i i remember he, hearing my husband tell Jebby, if there are two weeks where it's not fun, then it's time to quit. That's before I went to college. There's so many other things in college. If you don't like it every day for two weeks, you shouldn't be doing it. I think it's a good, you know, obviously there are moments that are not fun, but that, you know, if it continually is a drudgery, then it's the wrong thing. But I, I, I would hope that, that just the fun and the joy of working hard and being with other people and being on the water. I was going to say thing i mean my parents never told me to row they absolutely let me sign up for it on my own and we didn't really have a conversation about it until i actually decided to go to princeton for college no my i had my husband recruit her for windsor (laughs) well he never did it in a forceful or a pushy way it was my decision to sign up for it and i remember when i was applying to colleges i finally like submitted that application to princeton and my dad said you know when you were thinking about rowing, all the advice was like, be hands off and she'll make the right decision. You made the right decision and you decided to row. And so I figured for college, like I'll be hands off and she'll make the right decision. And you didn't. You decided to go to Princeton because he wanted me to go to Harvard. Um, <laughs> and Princeton was absolutely the right school for me. But and he is ultimately very supportive of that. But the point of this is that they let me find it for myself. Um, and so let me kind of make it my own experience. Um, and find the joy in it for myself. And I think one of the things that's been special about my mom as a coach and also my dad is that, I mean, it's really fun. Um, It is about the joy of it, but it's also about working hard. I think there is something just so supremely satisfying about setting your goals high and going out to chase them and succeeding. So my mom's team has a ton of fun, but I'm also going to hyper up and like they won youth math this year, which is not an easy feat for a all girls school of 240 girls. So I think I think definitely not athletic school. It yeah. was they, I just a had, very nerdy school. <laughs> it was really nice to have that last season just totally a blast. It was a very small group. I think everybody had a good time. I mean, not just the first boat, but it was it was so much fun and and I think it's fun to be with your teammates, but what makes it like special is that you're finding the fun in a challenge and finding the joy in challenges. Um and learning to work hard and yeah. kind of using each other to find your best self. I like joy and challenges, definitely. 
I like yeah. you use the word joy and the F word, the fun word. I'm really drawn to coaches who use the F word fun because we don't think of rowing as fun a whole lot. It's a lot of work. We don't play rowing like we play field sports and bringing fun into it allows the rowers to enjoy it in a different way and engage in it in a way that they may not if it was just about grinding out the meters and moving boats fast. You need to bring your team together in a certain way. And especially for young athletes, you want them to have fun. You want them coming back. Yeah, Dave O'Neill, who coached me on the U23 team, always said it's fun to go hard. It's fun to go fast. And I think it's a great way to look at the sport because Mm -hmm. it's not easy. It's not fun in the sense of, I don't know, like blowing up balloons or (laughs) uh, going to an amusement park. Right. Going to an amusement park. (laughs) It's a very different type of fun. But it's it's a more rewarding fun, I would say. I've coached um, novices and young masters rowers. And, you know, for folks who are really struggling through like maybe their first initial year where it's really that challenge is talking to them about this idea of eventually everything's going to come together and it will be fun in moving boats well and moving boats fast. It's just kind of putting all the pieces together and fine-tuning everything so that it can really start to be fun. There's a famous, uh, I forget who it is, it's like a big heavyweight rower guy uh, from Europe said, it doesn't have to be fun to be fun, which is one of my all-time favorite rowing quotes. Because I, I, <laughs> I, I think yeah. about that. And of course, I'm in the school of the type one, type two, type three fun. Like, oh, today's a, you know, today's a type one fun. We're going to stand on our heads and our singles and we're going to play games and we're going to do these tricks. And then next week is type three fun where you won't think it's fun until three months from now. <laughs> you know so i have one last question which is when you've been coached and you've both uh, done some coaching what's the best advice you've received that you would pass forward or best advice that you have embodied and pass forward what's your favorite nugget i think our college lori in college has always said faster um and i think that is like we were talking about earlier the embodiment of rowing that you're always kind of trying to go harder and go faster and find more speed. Like there's always something else out there. Um, and it's something I told myself over and over again in the single during practice or on the erg and pieces after I'd graduated. And another good one is don't let the highs get too high. Don't let the lows get too low. And that's Dave O'Neill again. And I think it's my parents being coaches, but I remember in high school, I had had a race the same weekend as my sister and we like demolish our opponents one by a ton. And I came off the water. My parents said, oh, but you really like weren't doing this so well. And like you could work on this. Like it was good, but here's all your room for improvement. And then we went up and watched my sister race and they lost. And it was all positive. Like, no, but you did this well. And like, think of all these benefits. And it's really just trying to find that middle ground of it's easy to be proud of your successes, but still finding in way to improve even after them. And it's easy to get really bummed after the losses and kind of taking the good points as well as the bad points away from them in order yeah. to maintain that stability and keep moving forward. And that's a great part of the sword is that there's always another stroke to take. It's been so long since I was coached. I don't remember any nuggets. What would you say your mantra to your youth athletes was? What was your guiding principle to them? I'm not into Mm. little things. I think mostly it was about sort of 
nine or 10 years into my coaching, I realized that I wanted to have the team have a lasting legacy. And the only way to do it was to de-emphasize the first boat and emphasize the whole team. And so it changed the program a lot. And I think everybody had a lot more fun. So it was more, you know, you walk in the boathouse and what can you do for everybody else? And, um, you know, and, and I think making it a, I think, actually, I think what it was was safety. So obviously in the Charles, you have to be safe on the water, but you also want all the athletes to feel safe to be whoever they are. And so that was sort of, I guess, safety would be the one thing. And I think the kids really got that. And um, it was a safe place for everybody. I think that was, I mean, I got a lot of comments, you know, I, you know, I, that was the part of the day I look forward to was being at the boathouse and not only the rowing, just being at the boathouse. And there were, there were some kids that, you know, were showing up and I'm like, you know, they really don't seem to enjoy the rowing, but they really like being at the boathouse, which is fine, you know, as long as they do the work. You didn't tolerate complaints. I will say the one thing she would say if we would complain, especially about the weather, because we're like, oh, soccer isn't practicing today because the fields are wet. So rowers are like ducks. They like playing in the rain. (laughs) We heard that a decent amount, actually. And the other one is rowers are like ducks in that, or swans. It looks easy on top, but they're like paddling furiously underneath. Yeah, yeah. I like that analogy a lot. It's very true. I, I, when I teach learn to row for masters, they're always like, I'm going to be a great rower, you know, emphasizing their biceps. And I'm like, ooh, no, 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 no. No, and that's just wrong. But that's all they see when they see it on the television. They just see that upper body moving. Really, that's where their their eye goes. So they think it's an upper body sport. So anyway, I digress. And one more quick thing. This will be the first episode of 2023. What's on your schedule? I'm going on my honeymoon. In the beginning of March, which is very fun. We're going to Chile and Patagonia. Woo. Go hiking. Um, And then I'm currently applying to sports fellowships. So I will start a sports fellowship, hopefully, assuming I match. I found out in January, um, in July. So hopefully one of the U.S. rowing team docks one day. So staying involved. Yeah, I'm I'm staying involved, but I, you know, I'll be off the board. And I don't, yeah, I think i I'm working hard at getting on. I have two new knees. Actually, they're not so new, but I hope to get on the water um, this spring, late in the spring after the water is heated up. Yeah. No, you hoping to, isn't this year the Masters World? Yeah, no, but I think that's a little. Their Master World are in South Africa. I thought that was a fun idea, but I'm not so sure that will happen. (laughs) It does sound pretty incredible. Yeah, it does. This has been fantastic, really. Thank you so much for talking with us. This was exactly the sort of conversation we wanted to have. Great. All right. Thank Thank you, you guys. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Happy holidays. You too. Happy holidays. To see photos of Lisa and Jebby Stone and get links to the people, clubs, and events mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Hey, Tara, I think some listeners might not know that Steady State is more than a podcast. Yeah, we should definitely tell them about Friday mornings when we get together for Coffee Chat. We talk about rowing, racing, and technique, and deep dive into things like inclusion and leadership. Yeah, we hope you'll join us Friday mornings at 8 a.m. West, 11 East, live on Instagram. Grab your favorite mug and be a part of the conversation. And sometimes we all need buddies to help us get through long workouts on the ERG. So we lead Steady State Sundays once a month at 6.45 a.m. West, 9.45 a.m. East. Join us January 29th and rack up some last-minute meters for the C2 Virtual Team Challenge. 
When folks sign up for this free 60-minute virtual ERG workout, we provide cues and insights to keep them motivated along the way. Register at SteadyStateNetwork.com slash SteadyStateSunday. Catch new episodes of Steady State Podcast every other Sunday. Coming up on the next show, we talk with U.S. Rowing DEI associate Jess Jackson. A former D1 volleyball player with an MS in Sports Administration, Jess joined the staff of U.S. Rowing in 2022. She's not a rower, but does understand the motivation we all have to contribute to the boat. In this conversation, she helps us to think critically and make the most effective and inspiring change for the future of diversity and equity in rowing. Listen to more episodes about everything from indoor rowing to rowing across oceans. Search the podcast archive at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast topics, or listen on your favorite podcast app. We're interested in your story. If you've got something to share or want to nominate someone to appear on the show, drop us a note at submissions at steadystatenetwork.com. Steady State Podcast is brought to you by me, Tara Morgan. And me, Rachel Friedman. Between us, we have nearly 40 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience, and we run successful rowing-related enterprises. Tara is the founder of Seize the Oar Foundation, which champions inclusion in the sport of rowing through team training, outreach, and thought leadership. And Rachel is the founder of RowSource, designing unique rowing gear for individuals, clubs, and events. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Seize the Oar and RowSource. Steady State Podcast is a production of Steady State Network. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Tara and Rachel. Rachel also manages our website and social media. Our theme music is by Jonas Hipper. Into way enough. That's one, two, way enough. So I love that we got to talk about like, okay, we put you guys on this huge pedestal. Let's just be honest. Like yeah. to us, it's a period of time where you're our heroes. You made laid the groundwork for us. And is that strange? She was like, yeah. I don't know. It was, you know, it was what Which it was. Which in and of itself, I think is really enlightening. And that I think it's fantastic. She learned to row. She was a woman. They rode. It was great. They had the equipment that they needed, which is a really different perspective than we've heard and repeated. And the California thing, we were really like enlightened or we were really informed about the different uh, perspective because we've had this mindset this whole time of the naked topless women in the in the Yale Title IX office or whatever. (laughs) You know, like that's our that's our perception of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.